You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 2nd of February. And this week we're going to start with a few things that changed this month from the introduction of a new energy subsidy to dates for upcoming school holidays. Then we'll dive into the six-week extravaganza that is Melody Festivalen, which kicks off this weekend. In politics, we'll discuss why this week heralds a new era for the Centre Party. Plus, we'll chat about why an eel fishing scandal led to the resignation of the Prime Minister's closest aide. We will listen to an interview with Bangladesh's ambassador to Sweden. And finally, in this week's main topic, we'll look into why fatal shootings reached record levels in Sweden last year and what the country can do to combat spiralling gang violence. I'm Paul Omani and with us in Malmö, we have Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. And here in Stockholm, we have James Savage and our guest today, Diamant Salihu. Welcome to the podcast, Diamant. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. So let's introduce you a little bit. You are a crime reporter with the public broadcaster SVT. And in 2021, you won Sweden's most prestigious journalism award, Stora Journalistpriset, for your book Tils Alla Dör, or Until Everyone's Dead. What else can you tell listeners about yourself? That I'm working, finishing a new book Mm -hmm. that might be also interesting for your English listeners. It's about the encrypted chats, encro chat that... UK actually was very involved in the beginning of the operation and has also led to a lot of arrests in the UK. And my book will be much about that. And for our French listeners, um, France was really involved. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very very involved. Very uh, key key role in this uh, operation. And uh, what's that book going to be called and when's it out? När ingen lyssnar when nobody is listening. Okay. I'm seeing a theme in the way you name your books here. <laughs> yeah, uh, three word titles. And uh, every book is like a layer that gives more insight into this world and maybe mm. more understanding about what's going on. You came from Kosovo originally, right? Yeah, I came from Kosovo and in 91. I was seven years old and I ended up growing up in a city called Borlinge in the best part of Sweden called Dalarna, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where we have this uh, traditional midsummer festival or fest and everybody has uh, the flowers in their hair and so on. Yeah, I grew up there and I had a really good childhood uh, with uh, going into school with friends from the, the houses uh, that were around where I grew up. So it was very mixed if you compare to the situation today where it's much more 
segregated. Mm-hmm. So it was different in Borlenga back then? It was more mixed? It was, even though I grew up in an area that was vulnerable. Yeah. It was still more mixed when I went to school. Uh, I could have friends from every background yeah. and I could play after school with my friends that had parents that had a good income and lived in houses and had pets and so on, which yeah. we didn't have. And um, that was a good way to learn the language, but also become more integrated. Good stuff. Very interesting. And we'll talk a bit about segregation when we get to the gang crime later. Uh, how, about, how are the rest of you? All okay? Good week? Oh, good. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that winter has returned to Stockholm. It's, um, it felt like it, it had absented itself a little bit yeah. early this year. So, But now it's back. It's crispy white snow and looking beautiful. I was shocked by the sunlight this morning and Malmo was like, went out of my dorm, which just had to bask for a couple of seconds. Like, these, what is this rays on my face? I've not experienced this for months. But no snow here. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, January felt like it was six weeks long this year, but we're finally into February, if you can believe it. And the snow is back, as James said, and the days are getting brighter. Sun is shining in Malmö, and there are a few other changes afoot in Sweden. Becky, the long-awaited energy price subsidy is finally coming this month. When's this happening exactly, and who's going to get it, and how? Yeah, so it's due to be paid out on February the 20th to households. Businesses will have to wait a little bit longer. And this is just kind of the first batch of the subsidy, um, which is for energy zones three and four, southern Sweden, which actually includes Stockholm. So, you know, we can debate the definition of southern there. It's uh, paid out to whoever was on the energy contract for the household on November 17th, 2022. And it will be paid out automatically, but you will need to register your bank account with Swedbank by February 13th as they're handling the payments along with Försäkringskassen if you want to make sure it arrives in time. We have a guide on the website of how you can register your bank account, what you can do if you don't have a persona number or bank ID or a Swedish address, all those kinds of questions on the website. Okay, brilliant. And we can link to that article. Uh, Also, somewhat controversially, it's no longer possible to use unregistered prepaid SIM cards as of February 1st. Why not, Richard? And what happens now if you have this kind of phone card? Well, the, the idea is to is to stop criminals because you know people use prepaid SIM cards as a burner phone. So you can just stick in a SIM, make a few calls and then and then just chuck the SIM away. And, and it's hard for the right. police to track you and listen into your phone calls and do all that sort of thing. And so you haven't been able to buy them since August. But if you still have one, there is a risk. It won't necessarily happen on the 1st of February, but there's a risk that from the 1st of February, it will stop working until you register it. But I think you can still keep the same number and the same SIM card. You just need to go into someone who sells SIM cards, a shop and register. Mm. You can do them online Mm. for some of the phone providers as well. And you need to bring ID, proof of ID which can be a passport or a driving license. Um, I don't think you need a a personal number or anything, so it should be accessible to most people. Well, they've said that you can also get one if you're a tourist, if you show a foreign passport. Yeah, I'm not not convinced it's going to be completely painless, but um, we'll see. That's what they've said. (laughs) But in theory, this shouldn't affect people who are here, for instance, on short-term visas like students or anything like that. They should also still be able to get uh, prepaid phones. Yeah, exactly. It's not a ban on prepaid SIM cards. It's a ban on unregistered prepaid SIM cards. So as long as you've got some kind of ID, you can still get one. What, What do you think? Do you think this is going to make life more difficult for criminals? Definitely. This is good news, uh, for the police authorities because they have been wanting this for a long time because the criminals use burner phones as you said they can have 10 phones just waiting for them and they can use them to contact drug customers or order 
other crimes. So mm. this is uh, hopefully will make it much more difficult for the gangs. Okay. Great. Let's see what else in February. So Sweden's central bank, the Riksbank, has a financial policy meeting uh, scheduled for February the 9th. What's expected to happen then with interest rates, James? Well, it's, it's a big event in one way because this is the first uh, interest rate rise for the new central bank governor, Erik Tidiem, who replaces Stefan Ingves, who was in, the, in position for a very, very long time. So last year, interest rates rose from zero to 2.5%. And the major banks now think he's going to raise it by another 0.5 points to 3%. A lot will depend also on what the European Central Bank does today as we're recording this. So by the time you're listening, you'll know what's happened there. Um, But they're expected to raise rates today, Thursday. And Sweden kind of needs to keep pace with the European Central Bank and with the Federal Reserve in the US to a certain extent, particularly to avoid the the krona falling in value even more than it already has, and it's fallen a lot already. But there are voices now saying that perhaps they they should start to review whether interest rates need to rise much further, particularly after the GDP figures in Sweden for the fourth quarter were very low. But yes, we're looking at at an interest rate rise of about 0.5%, probably, but we'll find out next week. Uh, The second part of February also means sport love in parts of Sweden or the midterm school break and we can talk about the concept of sport love in a later episode but for now Becky can you please just tell us when our kids are going to be off school because I for one would like to know. <laughs> yeah I, uh, I would recommend finding out when your kids are not going to be able to go to school. So the exact dates somewhat annoyingly depend on where you live but as a general rule your kids will be off for one week at some point between week seven and eleven so for those of you that have not yet adopted the Swedish week system that's uh, February 13th to March the 12th. So in Stockholm, kids are off in week nine. So that's February 27th to March 5th. In Gothenburg, it's week seven, which is February 13th to 19th. And in Malmö, it's week eight, which is February 20th to 26th. And they stagger it like that so that the ski resorts don't get overwhelmed. In um, mm. Isn't that why? They, isn't that the reason for it? That would be a good... How Swedish. Yeah, that so, would yeah. make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. I've never thought... I thought it was like <laughs> because the weather gets better as, you know, how further south you go or something. But no, that makes more sense that it's to stop overwhelming the ski resorts. Great. And I've made a note of those dates now, so I know when to um, look, take care of my children. Thanks, Becky. Uh, um, <laughs> we, we have an article on the site explaining more about all these changes that we've talked about, which we will link to in the show notes. Okay, Melody Festival and now. Love it or hate it, for the next six weeks, Sweden will be in the grip of its annual national song contest fever. And I chatted this week with Ben Robertson, an avid Eurovision watcher who regularly contributes articles to the local about the competition. And I asked him first about how he explains its enduring popularity. We could argue probably because it's in February. And there's nothing better to do than get outside for maybe one or two hours of sunlight, if you're lucky, and then come back inside and watch the big television show that you know everybody's going to be talking about in the office on Monday. But also as well, you've got the impact maybe of, you know, historically so many songs that have come through and the artists as well. The obvious one is ABBA to mention. But there's a whole plethora of like beloved artists here in Sweden who've came to attention through Melody Festival. So there's a whole tradition of seeing um, like established artists and newcomers make their breakthroughs through Melody Festival. But I think the biggest thing is that it is constantly a source of hit music. Yeah. You will find after Melody Festival in March that the top, let's say the top 20 in the Swedish charts will probably have, I'll throw out maybe 13, 14, 15 songs that have came from Melody Festival. Why do you personally find Melody Festival and so compelling? I'm happy to accept criticism that sometimes the styles of songs you see at Melody Festival are not your cup of tea. 
It is designed to be diverse. It is designed to have the traditional slagers and the dance bands. Designed to have one or two rock numbers a year. It's designed to have music to go to the gym with. It's designed to have tender ballads. There will be things you don't like and there will be things that you do like. I also love this aspect as well that you can be this established artist, but you have to bring your A game here. Otherwise, somebody who maybe, you know, we've seen before 16-year-old artists come to Melody Festival and had their breakthrough, won the entire thing. So now that David versus Goliathness of it is so great as well. And what I would say to people, you know, if they are forced to watch it, let's say, on Saturday night with the rest of the family, enjoy the production. Because from a musical entertainment production point of view, there is no greater show that I've seen than Swedish Melody Festival and for that live, I'm not going to call it music, I'm going to call it music entertainment. Mm. Who are the favourites to win? The favourites to win at the moment we will find are Marine. Yeah. Lorreen is, of course, most famous for the song Euphoria. That absolutely landslided the Eurovision victory in 2012. Lorreen is back with a song by, in part at least, the same songwriters as Euphoria. So there's much expectation there that it could be the one again. And tied at the moment, basically, in the betting markets would be a, a girl called Maria Sir, who another local has got an article about because he came to Sweden last year from Ukraine as managed to like stumble into the music scene here. She was on Ukraine's Got Talent before. She's been on Swedish TV a couple of times, got a melody festival and breakthrough. This would be a great example of, you know, a completely unknown artist to most of the Swedish public. Of course, there is a Ukraine narrative. The song's been described by herself as being quite autobiographical and that is reflecting upon the struggles in Ukraine in the last year. So that narrative could go down very well if both the juries and Televo is there, the top two. I have heard the songs that are competing in each one already, and there is definitely one song, I would say, that's got a chance, you know what, even possibly winning the entire Eurovision Song Contest right now. It's a song by um, a group of artists. Two of them have produced an edm style track you know very much the music of sweden has been strong with over the last 10 years and that's been paired with john henrik fjellgren who is one of the most beloved yolkers he is a reindeer herder mm. in the north of sweden you know he's got sami as his native language and the yolk part of this song is to his daughter who was born in Norway and because of reindeer herding and because of restrictions in the pandemic, he couldn't get to see her for the first year of her life. So very powerful and a very, like the blend of those two bits of music works so very well. That is the one to watch out for. That will compete on Saturday night. That was Ben Robertson. And if you'd like to read more from him, we'll link to his Melody Festival and preview article in the show notes. We're recording this episode on Thursday afternoon and as we speak, the Centre Party is holding a party conference where Annie Love has just given her resignation speech and Muharram Demirok has officially just become her successor as party leader. They got 6.7% of the vote in last year's uh, Swedish elections, which is less than they were hoping for, and they've lost a lot of ground among traditional voter groups in rural areas, for example. And despite being the only centre-right party to oppose collaboration with the Sweden Democrats, they really didn't manage to attract voters from the right. What do you think Richard Muharrem Demirok has to do to win voters? Well, I think his background as a as someone who grew up in, in the Stockholm suburbs doesn't look great for the 
party's rural base, which has always been its kind of, it's got this bank of reliable voters it could just kind of ignore who would always vote centre, and now they are no longer willing to do that. On the other hand, what what, what he's he, he he does come across really well. So I think when they, you know, no one had heard of him, and then they had the party leader campaign, and as soon as people heard him speak, I think a lot of people were like, "Wow, this guy has something." So I think that likability mm. it will will be in his favour. And he's also said that he's sort of pushed characterising himself as a sort of listening politician who's open to all sides of the party, and that for the party's for you know the former farmers party wing of the party that might be an improvement on love yeah even if their candidate lost i'm not sure that the approach that didn't do so well in the election will still not do well because i think a lot of the socially liberal voters who backed a changing government are maybe regretting it now because i don't think people expected them to t- take a, a sweden democrat agenda to quite the extent that they have you know the migration policy is basically the sweden democrats migration policy and i think so a lot of people who thought well you know i don't want i don't want the left party raising my taxes might now think well if there's a party that's going to stop the social democrats raising taxes and will be economic liberal, but also won't be supported by the Sweden Democrats. That's maybe something that, that's maybe quite a more attractive policy mix, I reckon, now. So it might work for them as a long-term strategy? Uh, I think uh, they have had bad timing because of the escalation of the violence, too. Uh, when they choose uh, migration questions, then a lot of people, even with a foreign, foreign background, are so tired of the violence, and they only want to have a change. So I don't, I don't think they had the best timing because of the escalation. No, mm. definitely. That's definitely true. A couple of weeks ago, we had a quick chat about the fact that the Prime Minister's closest advisor, PM Nilsson, had just been fined for illegal eel fishing. The story had just broken at that point, and it wasn't really obvious what the consequences would be. But it turned out that he came under a lot of pressure to step down, and eventually that's exactly what happened. Why was this scandal so damaging that PM Nilsson felt he had no choice but to resign? Well, I think first of all, from I think when people first heard this story, they, they, they thought, well, he, he was caught fishing eels. It was a, a minor offence. Then people started talking about the fact that eels were an endangered species, that this was actually quite serious. The, yeah. the, the fines that attract are quite high. And then he also, it also transpired that he had lied to the police about it on multiple occasions. And then it um, transpired that he was under investigation for more serious offences connected to the same incident, but um, uh, breaches of endangered species legislation, which, yeah. which took it up to another level. And that's an investigation that's still ongoing. And that is an investigation that's still ongoing. But I think if you really analyse it, I think the main problem that he faced was that the whole scandal just went on too long. People were talking about it too long. It became a joke. It was the subject of memes. He he became the news. And if you're an advisor to the prime minister, the worst thing you can do is become the news. And so I think, you know, there's an old rule that, uh, that that if a scandal doesn't die down after two days, then you're in trouble. And well, this, this took a lot longer than two days, it still hasn't died down. So he had mm. to resign. Yeah. To quote our guest last week, Andrea Shevenka, he said, all in all, it's been a bad week for PM Nilsson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All being the, the Swedish word for eel. He'll be regretting the day. He'll be, re- <laughs> he'll be regretting it. <laughs> 
On now to the latest in our series of interviews with ambassadors to Sweden. And this week we're going to listen to a chat I had with Mehdi Hassan, the ambassador from Bangladesh, about everything from how Bangladesh is a key production market for H&M to how unexpectedly friendly he has found Swedes to be. I started by asking him how many Bangladeshis there are living in Sweden. Uh, according to uh, the Sweden statistics, uh, the figure is around 18,000, but they consider only the people who have come as uh, Bangladeshis, but then there are offspring of Bangladesh nationals uh, who were born in Sweden. So we call them Bangladesh origin mm. uh, Swedish nationals. Yeah. So, so they are not included in these statistics. So the number may be a little bit uh, larger. What are um, Bangladeshi people doing here and where are they living? Are they concentrated in Stockholm or are they spread around the country? They are spread around the country, but I think uh, 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 as per our uh, knowledge, uh, mostly they are in uh, Stockholm. They are in different professions, like uh, in IT, in uh, in the medical field, like we have around 60 to 70 doctors mm -hmm. working in Sweden. Uh, we have engineers, um, we have uh, lawyers. Uh, we have business people, there are researchers also, and uh, every, every year about three to 400 students are coming in for a study. And can you tell us a little bit about relations um, between the two countries? Uh, Sweden and Bangladesh just uh, celebrated uh, 50 years of diplomatic relations last year in 2022. And uh, Sweden uh, was among the first few countries uh, to recognize Bangladesh as an independent state and Sweden supported our war of liberation in 1971, both uh, morally and materially. And since then, Sweden has been our partner in our development process. SIDA uh, was active and Sweden established uh, embassy in the very early days uh, of our independence. And uh, over the years, last uh, 50 years, our relationship have widened and deepened, and now uh, we have uh, like common areas where we share our a um, lot of common positions, like in uh, uh, climate issues, uh, in uh, peace, in uh, women in development, and also uh, multilateral forums where we yeah. support each other. Last but not the least. H&M, like we have a very big, uh, large trade relationship with Sweden, uh, yearly more than one billion US dollar. It's very much tilted towards Bangladesh, actually. We export a lot to mm -hmm. Sweden, uh, mostly uh, textiles, garments. And um, to mention about H&M, uh, uh, we are their major supplier. You know, more than 200 garment factories produce uh, for H&M. Then also Lindex, Kappa, mm -hmm. Bangladesh is a major uh, supplier to them. One thing I associate with Bangladesh is excellent food. Is that not something you miss when you're here or can you find Bangladeshi food in Sweden? Well, there are uh, some special dishes that we do not find here. Like uh, in our uh, marriage ceremonies, we, call, we, we prepare a special dish, we call it uh, kachi biryani. You don't have it here. No. So I often miss that one. But of course, we cook it at home. But they never, uh, the taste is never uh, going to be the same as we do it in the marriage uh, events. And uh, you'd be uh, interested to know that in Sweden, in Stockholm itself, there are more than 
200 restaurants owned by Bangladeshis. So they, they serve uh, mixed, uh, mixed food, like Bangladeshi food, or food from our continent. And all over Sweden, we know that uh, there are around 300 restaurants owned by Bangladeshis. Okay, so you can, you can get what you need. Yes. So you moved here quite recently, just in June. What, what would you say is the one thing you found most surprising since moving here? Two things. First was uh, the um, people here are very friendly and supportive, uh, very helpful. Uh, second is, of course, the nature and the very fresh air yeah. that we often uh, we, we enjoy all the time. That was the Bangladeshi ambassador, Mehdi Hassan. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we will have an article on the site featuring more from that interview in the coming days. And we're going to turn now to organised crime and the fact that Sweden saw 63 fatal shootings last year, by far the highest number on record. Why is Sweden experiencing unprecedented levels of gang violence and what can be done about it? Diamant, two years ago, you released Tills Aladar or Until Everyone's Dead, a book that explores the rapid increase in deadly attacks in the last few years, particularly in the Järva area of western Stockholm and in particular the suburb of of Rinkeby. Can you just tell us first what the title refers to, Tils Aladar? Uh, that's from an interrogation that the police had with one rapper and it was after a death shooting and this rapper was suspected for another crime but was heard about this guy that he knew. Yeah. And then he had a chat with the officer that was more open than they used to have and the police officer asked him how long is this going to go on? And uh, the rapper replied, until everybody dies. Till Saladar, yeah. Swedish, which says very much about this extreme radical world because I'm hearing the same sentence over and over again now from uh, from colleagues that are mm. out in the suburbs meeting these young guys that are into the gangs or uh, are criminal and they, they actually refer to the title because it, they recognize that that's the, the way it is. That's how it feels. That's the yeah. mindset now. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, what we are experiencing at the moment. Yeah. And your book sort of takes us back to the start of this conflict in Rinkeby. And it starts with the story of two boyhood friends, Izzy and Masla, who drifted into criminality and they fell out over a two million kroner heist at a Forex currency exchange. And their murders in... 
2015 sparked a rift that eventually resulted in the creation of rival gangs that came to be known as Shotas and Dutzpatrullen, or the Death Patrol. But when you interviewed locals in Rinkeby, people told you that the source of the descent into lawlessness could be traced back years earlier to 2007. Can you explain what happened then and how it affected Rinkeby? Yeah, so for, for decades, uh, the people there had been seeing that the I mean the companies uh, or of official uh, buildings uh, like um, the county of Rinkeby, Tensa, they everything was closing down. Yeah, uh, the post office was closing down. The Försäkringskassan, I don't know yeah. the word in English, was closing down and it was more and more isolated. And then in 2007, they closed down the, the county house. Yeah. So there were like hundreds of people working there, eating lunch, making conversations about everyday life. So we, people felt more and more close to, to the majority of society. And in 2014, even the police office closed down. Yeah. And then the year after, this conflict started. And you talk in the book about the layers of complexity that make it hard, first of all, to solve the murders, but also to find lasting solutions. And one aspect is what you describe as a culture of silence among the Somali group in Rinkeby, where a lot of the gang members come from. And it's interesting, too, that you explain how a lot of the rival criminals' parents were friends with each other and had tried repeatedly to intervene, but the boys and young men themselves felt alienated from everything, from Sweden, from Somalia, from their families, from school. And obviously, a lot of teenagers all over the world feel alienated, you know. Mm. But what is it about these particular circumstances that has proved so lethal? I think... In this specific situation, uh, there was a group of, of around 20 young teenagers from the beginning yeah. that were feeling alienated from everything and nobody could really stop them. The parents even, some of the parents even sent their children to Somalia yeah. so they could turn around and become, uh, realize what they had in Sweden, but they got even worse when they came back. I think that there's a combination of many things when it comes to this this group of failing in school, having problems in their families, nobody putting borders, I mean, limits to what they can do or not, not even the police, because the police uh, went away and left them alone there. So the parents that were already feeling that they couldn't do anything, they totally lost control after these young teenagers armed themselves and started killing each other. Yeah. And when then the police, even after the killings, couldn't solve the murders, it gave these guys even more uh, motives to continue killing each other mm. for revenge. So the bad efficiency from the police and the prosecutors to solve the cases of the killings has led to even more, more murders and making these young teenagers even more radicalized. So it's a kind of retribution justice. They were they were just they were they were they were solving their own crimes. Yes, yes. So the the I mean they were solving their own crimes, and I think it's a big failure from the society that we can do better to prevent this much earlier. Uh, this also sends signals to the community there that we can't do anything about this. Mm. So that. Uh, made parents and siblings afraid to speak with the police 
uh, to speak with the media and create this uh, silence of culture. Yeah, and when you talk about in, in Somali culture, there is a tradition of paying blood money rather than exacting revenge. And that's something some of these parents have tried to use to solve the problems, but their their children have no interest in this culture. So, like, we don't care about blood money, we're going to get revenge. Yeah, yes, uh, exactly. So the parents have tried... I mean, that that's a, was an act of desperation, I would say. Yeah. Uh, because they first wanted to wait for the Swedish authorities to solve the, yeah. these shootings. They didn't. So they then realized that they need to do something. Tried to negotiate between the, the guys. Didn't work that either. Then they turned to these old traditions that usually would work yeah. in Somalia. But these guys are not from Somalia. They're from Sweden. Mm with Somali parents. Uh, so they created their own society, this extremely radicalized mm. uh, way of uh, living that uh, neither their parents or this society can really understand fully, I would say. It's really striking in the book just how much the community really did tr- try to solve this at the start, to, to the extent that the two first boys were buried side by side on the request of the, the local imam and the parents agreed, you know, we need to draw a line under this and move on, but but nothing worked. Nothing worked. And, uh, I mean, um, some police officers also are very sceptical to what happened there yeah. because uh, the, some say that when the the religious leaders, the clan leaders, started to intervene there in the beginning, that also sent signals to the community that now it's even. Yeah. So now you don't have to say anything, don't get involved. Right. Because after the the funeral of these two young teenagers, uh, the police had really d- difficulties to get people to talk to them, even though they knew that some had... Uh, witnessed part of the ignition of this uh, conflict. Mm. And I realise that we're talking a lot about, about Rinkeby, but do you think the situations we're describing here are applicable to the to Sweden as a whole? Uh, yes, uh, I mean, I zoomed in into one conflict, into one area. Today, I mean, Rinkeby is actually calmer yeah. than it has been for many years, but uh, it's like a fire, and the fire has spread to so many other parts of Sweden. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now it's in the southern parts of Stockholm that we read about 
almost every morning about new shootings or yeah. explosives. We hear about similar stories from smaller cities around Sweden. Even yesterday there was a shooting in Malmö. Even yesterday, yeah. And it, I think it was in Linköping too, uh, shooting. I can't keep trace on every shooting anymore. No. Or not the death shootings either, to be honest. Uh, but uh, I think that um, the roots of the problem are the same. Uh, we have very segregated areas and we have a young generation uh, that we've known for many years that they are in a risk to become criminals. We have failed to stop that from happening. Now they're armed and dangerous and we're like, what the heck should we do now? Yeah, We're in, the, in that situation. I think until now people have been waiting or, or like pushing this problem away and now this problem is facing us very closely and now we have to deal with it. That takes us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. A big thank you to our guests Diamant Salihu and we'll be back again on Tuesday with a bonus episode featuring more from this interview. Our panellists this week were Richard Orange, Becky Waterton and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards and I'm Paul Omani. Until next time, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.